I honestly think a lot of people do a little too much volume, but they don't necessarily get the most out of each set and each rep. Like if you're pushing, you know, let's say a set of five to an RP eight, that is very hard. That's very, very hard. You know, if you're really pushing that hard, you don't need as many sets because the intensity of effort is so high. Welcome to the Barband Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your host, David Thomas Tao, and this podcast is presented by Barband.com. Today, I'm talking to powerlifter and coach Daniel DeBrock, Director of Education at Kabuki Strength. He's also a writer for BreakingMuscle.com, a website in the Barbend Network, so I'm a huge fan of his writing, but then again, I'm a little biased. Daniel is one of the most thoughtful people I've ever encountered when it comes to athlete prep and programming for competition. In today's episode, we dive deep on programming for powerlifting, including the sometimes unexpected changes that occur when progressing from beginner to intermediate to advanced. Daniel drops some real knowledge bombs in this episode. Great for athletes and coaches alike. But before we get to that, a quick shout out to today's episode sponsor, Organifi. Organifi makes a line of organic superfood blends that offer plant-based nutrition with high-quality ingredients. Each blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with ingredients that are organic, free of fillers, and contain less than three grams of sugar per serving. Their products are designed to promote energy, most with zero caffeine and only a couple grams of sugar. Go to Organifi.com forward slash barbend and use the code barbend, easy enough, for 20% off your order. That's Organifi.com forward slash barbend, code barbend for 20% off. Now let's get on with the show. Daniel, thanks so much for joining me today. First time actually ever chatting with you live, which is always, always a treat. So I'm not going to lie and claim we go back a decade or anything like that, but hey, I get to make a new friend today, so I'm, I'm excited about that. But thanks for joining us. For folks who don't know, if you wouldn't mind, give a little bit about you know your background, who who the heck you are, and and why you love what you do. Yeah, for sure. So first off, thanks for having me on. Um, it, it's actually really cool to kind of be on here because obviously I've uh, read you guys' stuff for a long time, and so it's it's kind of cool to be on on the other end a little bit behind the curtain. So a little bit about me. My name is Daniel DeBrock, and uh, I. I'm a competitive powerlifter. I was a competitive weightlifter. I won uh, Canadian national championships in 2021. And in, 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 weight li- in weightlifting, you're, t- you're powerlifting. In powerlifting. Okay. powerlifting. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So I'm just kind of trying to stick to the relevant points anyways, <laughs> <laughs> quickly. Yeah. And, and I've, been a, I've been a coach for about 10 years now. And a few years back, I initially started writing just because I thought it would be kind of interesting to, to write for different publications. So I submitted it, got accepted. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe it was a fluke. And wrote another article, got accepted. I was like, oh, okay, and wrote another one. And then I just started kind of writing all these articles for various publications. And I started kind of building up quite a bit of momentum. And it turned out that I had a bit of an aptitude for it. You know, fast forward a little while later, I ended up writing uh, for Kabuki. And so the longer that I wrote my articles have become a lot more long form. Like the last one, it's not out yet, but it's over 17,000 words. So it's a very deep literature view. Yeah. And so not a lot of people are doing those kind of articles, which is kind of a bit of a niche uh, space for me. And so I had written a really long, like in-depth article for, for Kabuki Strength. And then I submitted another one. And then it was at, actually at that point where they asked me to become a coach. And so I've been working with them for two years in the capacity of a coach. And then 
about six months or something like that ago, they just reached out to me and they're like, Hey, you know, we, we kind of see your skills being a little bit better suited towards this position. So they created a position of, so I'm director of education now. And it's been really great because, you know, I, I get to coach uh, everyone from kind of beginner, but mostly like at least intermediate or more advanced athletes. And then I get a lot of, you know, time to do research and develop educational programs. So we're developing like a certification right now for, for a uh, powerlifting federation. And so there's a lot of really great things to, to go on in there. So it's, I really like the position essentially because it allows me to kind of have my, my foot in both sides of the, on both sides of the fence where it's like, I have this, you know, opportunity to really dive super deep into the literature, but then I also have to kind of keep myself grounded through actual coaching practices. So I think that's probably what's, what's relevant to them anyways. <laughs> well, the big question I, I have is, and this is someone, a name that we talked a little bit about when we were scheduling the podcast, who is the bigger strength nerd, you or Greg Knuckles? That's the big question I have. He's someone who, you know, I looked up to for a very long time in the industry and, and, uh, I mean, still look up to obviously, but it's, it's kind of cool because now he's a little bit more of a peer, but he's, he's definitely got to take the take on that for sure. <laughs> Plus his beard's amazing. So, yeah, he has a great beard, 17,000 words for him. That's like a warm up. He's like, okay, when do we actually get to the, when are we actually getting to the topic? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Right. Well, it was funny actually, because that was actually one of the things that really inspired my writing was because I noticed that Greg was one of the very few people who actually wrote really long form content. And, and so that was where I was kind of like, Hey, you know what? There might be a space for this sort of stuff. And so that's kind of what got me on that, uh, on that kick, you know? Makes sense. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about the topic of the day, or at least an introduction to it. We'll get more specific as we go on. We're talking about programming for powerlifting, right? That's something that I know you're super passionate about. And I think something that gets misinterpreted because when you first learn about the sport of powerlifting, at least when I did, it's presented as something very simple, linear progressive overload. That's a phrase that I kept hearing when I was, and I come from a weightlifting background as well, right? So when you're a weightlifter and someone's explaining powerlifting to you, they're like, oh, it's, it's, much, it's much simpler, linear progressive overload, linear progressive overload. Oh, oh, okay, that seems pretty straightforward. But obviously with anything, there are levels of nuance and with proficiency and with expertise comes complication right? Because gains don't come so easy necessarily. So when thinking about powerlifting or programming for powerlifting in a broad sense, what are some of the principles that you think are really important to establish or at least wrap our head around, wrap our heads around, my apologies, as we get deeper into the discussion? Yeah, so that's a great question. And, and I honestly actually think that it also somewhat depends on the level of the lifter as well, right? So I think there are good fundamental principles, which, which I'll kind of cover. But then I also think that as you go from, you know, novice to intermediate to late intermediate, advanced, elite, international elite, the priorities tend to shift a little bit, right? And so if you want, we can touch on that, but I'll kind of cover some of the, the more fundamental ones first. So first and foremost, specificity has to be prioritized. So if you want to increase your squat, bench, and deadlift, you have to do some form of squat, bench, and deadlift. And the farther that you deviate from the competition, the less translation you risk having into the sport. So for instance, if you want to get good at boxing, don't play tennis, right? And, and it's funny because sometimes that gets lost a little bit because you're like, well, I'm squatting or I'm deadlifting or I'm doing an RDL. This is really similar. But especially the more advanced you become, specificity sort of like, it's almost like a funnel. You know, you kind of talked about a funnel before we started recording. 
And so the higher up you get, the more specific you need to be, the, the more that the intensities, the volumes, the rep ranges, the exercise selection, the execution, range of motion, all of that stuff needs to be more specific to what it is that you're doing. So specificity is definitely one of the foundational components. Then I think another one that's really, really underrated is staying injury-free to the best of your ability. Because I think a lot of the times people get into powerlifting and they push really, really hard, get really strong or get, you know, a lot stronger. And then they start experiencing these injuries and they don't necessarily take the time to troubleshoot appropriately or seek out professional help or anything like that. And so like, okay, I need to maybe dial it back. So they dial it back for a little bit, pain goes away. They start to push again and they start getting injured. And they're like, I don't get what's happening. So making sure that you have a very comprehensive and balanced approach to your training that makes sure that you can, you know, address any sort of bilateral discrepancies. You can really reinforce productive training technique and you can manage your fatigue and all of these things become really important. Remaining injury-free is also really important. And then from there, selecting some sort of progression model, like you talked about linear progression and a progression strategy is really important. As you become more advanced, these things become a lot more important as well, because I mean, realistically, a novice lifter can basically just look at a dumbbell and they're going to get stronger. You know what I mean? Whereas if you become stronger and more proficient, the amount of levers that you can pull sort of starts to narrow a little bit, or at the very least, you have less of an adaptive like potential from each lever that you pull. If, if we're looking at levers as like exercise selection, frequency, intensity, all of these things. So I think those are some of the really big ones. And, you know, selecting which mode you're going to apply to the individual is, is really part of the, the soft side of, of coaching, right? Like the soft skills and the, the, the sort of like, that's where all the experiential work kind of comes in because realistically there are no research papers that teach you how to coach or teach you how to develop a program design. They just kind of give you sort of mechanistic stuff and theoretical constructs that you can sort of imply uh, things in the real world. But ultimately, you do have to have that experiential component to really know how you're going to apply something to an athlete. Does that answer the question? Yeah, that answers the question. That actually answers the next four or five questions I had. So it was very, very thorough. Awesome. I guess we're already off here. I'll, I'll just see you later. <laughs> see, see you guys later. This is a se- seven-minute barbed podcast. No, yeah. I actually want to dive a little bit more into these coaching soft skills. Because I think that there are a lot of misconceptions about about powerlifting that I personally had years ago. Uh, and obviously, now Barben being over six years old, we cover more, we produce more powerlifting content than literally anyone else on the planet. I've learned a thing or two, or at least I've tended to learn more about what I don't know about the sport. And I assume a little bit less. What are some of the presumptions or assumptions that you think people have about coaching the sport of powerlifting, maybe especially at the elite level that you know you run into a lot or that you hear a lot that don't necessarily sync up with the reality of what you do as a coach? Well, I guess there's kind of a few, right? So anytime you look at powerlifting, people tend to sort of self-organize into ideological camps, right? Whether it's like, oh, I'm in the Bulgarian system, or I'm doing West Side, or I'm you know, like just, just grind brother, you know, like just push the pain and, or, or like, you know, a uh, minimum effective dose or whatever it is. And so I think, I think your preconceptions are going to have a, a strong influence on what you, how you interpret um, what people are doing at a high level. And so I think that's kind of the first, the first consideration. Um, but I would definitely say one big thing is people, people overvalue 
minutiae and they significantly undervalue the fundamentals, right? Like, you know, when you look at an elite athlete and you look at the things that they're doing, let's say they're really, really emphasizing nutrient timing and food composition around their training and all these things. You might look at that and say, oh man, that's the key. He's exceptionally strong or she's exceptionally strong, very talented athlete. That's what I need to focus on because they keep hammering on this. But the reality is when you're, let's say, a novice or intermediate athlete, these changes can be very small. And if you don't have the fundamentals dialed into a very, very high degree, all of those little details get washed out. You're not actually able to really see them express themselves as some sort of adaptive benefit. Whereas when you get someone like, let's say, Mike Tashur, so so I was actually chatting with him like last week. And, um, you know, he was talking about his training and he's made like very small adjustments to his nutrition, yet it's having a very profound impact and you wouldn't necessarily expect it to. Right. But I think the big distinction is he's a very high level lifter. So his room and the things that he like all the volume knobs that he's kind of turning or the levers that he's pulling can have a much, much more significant impact because everything else is perfectly lined up in his life. You know, whereas if you're someone who's like, you train really hard, but your protein intake is, is not, is insufficient, your calories are insufficient, you're not getting very good quality sleep, you're pretty stressed out, you drink a lot or whatever it might be. If you start to take creatine, I don't know how much that's going to help. You know what I mean? And so I think it, it all boils down to individual context and where you're at. But that would probably be one of the big ones is people will look at elite lifters and say, you know, oh, that's what the coaches are prioritizing with their athletes. Therefore, I need to do that. Where, whereas, like, maybe you don't. Maybe what you just need to do is, you know, de-stress a little bit more. Or maybe try getting to bed 15 minutes earlier or whatever it might be. And so I think there's a lot of context that that's missing when you're making these observations sometimes. Let's talk about programming at a more macro sense. And I appreciate you diving into to those the, the the devil's in the details right the, the yeah. minutia matter but they matter at different times and in different ways and it's easy to lose the forest through the trees that's the last idiom i'm going to use for at least a few minutes i promise <laughs> let's talk about programming parameters in general an athlete comes to you and I'm, I'm, I'm curious how the factors change between beginner intermediate and advanced lifters when they come to you and you're tasked as a coach with directing programming for them yeah. So essentially if someone comes in and they're more of a beginner or like, you know, kind of novice or early intermediate, there's going to be a much heavier focus on skill acquisition. So we're probably going to have, you know, higher frequency of, you know, competition lifts or close derivatives to really drive up some of those fundamental motor, motor skills that they need. If they're under muscled for their weight class or for their long-term goals, if they want to lose weight or if they want to gain a bunch of weight or whatever, we're going to be prioritizing those things. So maybe a concurrent model might work really well for those individuals because we can prioritize hypertrophy and strength and skill acquisition simultaneously, right? Because ultimately strength is a skill. You can be super strong in the leg press, but maybe only squat like 225 because you don't have the stability, the internal stability requirements, right? So skill acquisition is going to be a really, really big focus. And so all of the ways that we can do that are going to be through, you know, maybe increasing frequency, monitoring exercise selection, doing like video reviews if you're not coaching them in person, having supporting exercises that can kind of help bolster their ability to execute those movements effectively. So if you know, 
you know, someone's just got like a, a really weak lats or really weak glutes or something like that. Maybe you just need to apply a little bit more volume and accessory exercises there. So I think a good general, well-rounded base is going to be good. And I also think, especially that for beginners and early intermediates, and this is my perspective, you know, doing a lot of bodybuilding as your accessory work is going to be very valuable long-term because you're building up that base and, and muscle is strength potential essentially to some degree. When you get into intermediates, that's when it becomes, you know, you start kind of having to be a little bit more methodical in terms of what variables you're changing. So for those people, you have to really start thinking about lifestyle a lot more. You have to start, I mean, you need to be thinking about that stuff for everyone, but that's where it really starts to matter a little bit more. Programming has to become a little bit more detailed and a little bit more individualized as well. So, hey, you know what? I'm noticing that SSB squats don't seem to be doing anything for your, for your comp squat, but front squats seem to be fantastic. You know, so how are you collecting that data? Are you doing, you know, let's say weekly reviews or bi-weekly or monthly or whatever? Like that feedback is really important and the communication with your athletes is super important. How are you finding this? Are you enjoying the training? What do you find is working? What do you find is not working? And then obviously just reviewing the data and seeing like, what do we need to prioritize? In the intermediate stage, you probably still need to be focusing on building muscle as well. But again, there's a little bit, I don't want to say less of a focus on skill acquisition, but there's a little bit more of a focus on uh, specialized skills. So really increasing the intensity and giving them more exposure to high intensity because they are better at racing and moving and all of that stuff. So now we can really start to push them. Whereas with a novice, you maybe you couldn't, right? Because they just weren't technically sound enough. For an advanced athlete, that's where specificity has to become really, really important and, and kind of take center stage. So now maybe you get, you know, let's say two standard deviations away from the, the competition lifts and all of a sudden you're not really seeing any carryover. Now, maybe that's not the case, but maybe it is. So that's where you really have to start dialing in all of the knobs. You have to be pulling all the levers, looking at their sleep, looking at their nutrition, looking at their stress management, looking at their mood, their level of enjoyment of the training, looking at their hydration status, their supplementation, looking at their meal timing, all of these things. None of those are even programming specific. But even if you're only doing their programming, you still have to mount, monitor those things because those have a very strong indirect influence on their training performance. Then when you're looking at the actual program design, you have to look at things like how much volume can they tolerate? How often are we deloading? Could we maybe pull back volume just a little bit? Maybe, you know, stretch out their, their productive training time so we're not having to deload as frequently. You know, are they getting any hip pain if they're squatting too much? Can we alter their frequency? So those are like the little details you're going to have to kind of parse out. And by that time, an advanced athlete should have a pretty darn good understanding of what actually works and what doesn't work. And if you've been working with them for you know, a reasonable amount of time, or if they have just a good training log, you should be able to kind of tell a lot of that stuff just through that, as well as the intake process as well. We'll get back to that in just a second, but first a quick shout out from today's episode sponsor, Organifi. They make a line of organic superfood blends that offer plant-based nutrition with high quality ingredients. Take Organifi Red Juice as an example formulated to recharge mind and body with a delicious superfood berry blend of premium organic superfoods with potent adaptogens, antioxidants, and a clinical dose of cordyceps. Go to Organifi.com forward slash barbend and use code barbend for 20% off your order today. Now let's get back to the show. I've heard some athletes say, and this is not specific to powerlifting, by the way, this is just in strength sports. I've heard that some athletes say as they get more advanced and as they get to that elite stage they start to realize that the impact of a coach is less 
but then they have to unlearn that when they realize they're actually not at that advanced stage yet. So basically to say <laughs> they think they're elite, okay, a coach isn't as important. And then through that, they actually realize they're not as elite as they thought. And maybe a coach is more important than ever. So I'm curious as to your interpretation on that. It's kind of like when you're a teenager, you think you know everything about the world, but you really know absolutely nothing. That, that's kind of the, the, the reaction I've gotten from a lot of lifters who have gone over that bell curve. Yeah, it's kind of like the Dunning-Kruger effect. Well, I mean, actually, it's, it's exactly what you were saying before, right? Like, I mean, you've got this really wildly successful company. You've been in the industry a long time. You've been training for a long time. And you kind of got to this point where you're like, oh, wow, the more that I learned, the more that I really realized, like, how much is actually out there still to learn. And so I don't, I don't necessarily know that I disagree with that. I mean, I've never necessarily heard people say that. I think people are more reluctant to hire coaches initially. Until they do reach a point where they're like, hey, how serious am I taking this? And then at that point, that's usually when they hire coaches. So I would probably say that I would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> excellent. It's very rare that I ask like a pretty open-ended question on the podcast and someone's like, yeah, I agree with that. Normally, it's like they're trying to figure out a really polite way to tell me I'm really dumb or just completely misinterpreting something. <laughs> so <laughs> No, I mean, to each their own, right? Like I, I, I've definitely seen people do that. Like I'm definitely the kind of person who likes to tinker. Like... I've hired uh, coaches in the past. I have a nutrition coach right now. And it's like, if you go in there with, with the intention of learning, you can still get that learning benefit, right? Because I really enjoy programming. And I think a lot of people sometimes are like, I want to do it on my own. It's like, okay, cool. But you should probably also learn from other people. So <laughs> it's, it's like improv. Yes. And it's not yes, but, but it's like, okay. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Let's, let's. <laughs> Sorry, some weird stuff just went on in my head. You'll have to forgive me. This is why I like talking to Canadians on the podcast. Everyone's so polite, right? There's the, I'm, 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 I'm going to get the backlash afterward. Um, let's talk a little bit about competition preparation specifically and competition specificity. Programming, look, this is a sport. You're programming so that people can perform not just well in training, but specifically so they can perform to the best of their ability and set new personal records on the competition platform. When it comes to competition prep, how are you approaching coaching, especially at that elite level where, when people might have more competition experience? Yeah, that's a great question. So it, it essentially, a lot of it is kind of knowing the athlete as well. Mm. I think that is equally as important as the actual program because I've had athletes where like, especially when you start taking them into, you know, the peak where they're hitting numbers with like, I've never hit this weight before and I'm smoking it. Like this was my second or third attempt last meet and I'm hitting it for a double at like an RPE seven, you know, like they're jacked up. You have to know how to pull the reins on those individuals. Like discipline is extremely important in contest prep. You know, it's like if you're in off season, yeah, sure. Go out, have fun, play other sports, do whatever you like. But at an elite level, the discipline is paramount. You cannot be going out hiking and doing all, I shouldn't say you can't, right? But let's at least say it's not advised because what happens if you roll your ankle when you're hiking? You know, what happens if you go on a hike, you get dehydrated and you maybe you sprain your, your hamstring or something like that? Now you've taken away like what, a week, maybe two weeks of, of really productive lower body training. So I think you have to be a lot more cognizant about like what you're doing and the risks uh, associated with it. And then also just knowing the individual, being able to pull the reins back. That's really important from a programming perspective. Obviously, what you're going to see 
is this kind of like funneling effect of, you know, having higher volumes at the bottom. Let's say you're doing, you know, sets of five or eights or something like that further out from competition or even fours or sixes, whatever it might be. And then as you get closer, you start, you know, the, the eights start turning into fives, fives start turning into, you know, triples, doubles, singles. And then maybe about four or five weeks out, you're doing, you know, a fair bit of singles at like an eight, you know, um, kind of like the, the Mike DeSure type thing. Your exercise selection is also going to funnel. Your, your volume is going to scale down um, with some level of proportionality according to the proximity of your, your, uh, your competition date, right? So your, let's say 12 weeks out. Yeah, sure. You can have front squats in there and you can have high bar squats and SSB and all this other stuff. But, you know, if you're, let's say four weeks out and you haven't done a, like a low bar squat yet, it's going to take a little while for you to familiarize yourself and just kind of get comfortable in that low bar position if you haven't done it for a while. And so you really need to make sure that exercise selection starts being scaled more specifically. Volume goes down just enough to drive adaptations, but to still make sure that we can, we can recover and we're not just beating ourselves up as the intensity increases. And then also it's really important to pay attention to what actually works because, you know, there are peaking best practices, but man, I can tell you a number of times and it's not like a, a menial number either, but there's like a, a fairly large percentage, you know, it's still a minority, but a large percentage of individuals who are very high level who require very odd and counterintuitive peaking methods. Like for me, I was doing front squats up until two weeks out of my competition. And I hit like a 50 pound PR on my, on my squat. Now for that though, do you think that might have something to do with your weightlifting background and your comfort in the, in building strength in that position? I mean, probably to some degree, but essentially, like, I think one thing that's really important to keep in mind is, you know, like specificity is, is a tool and it's like, usually it means these things, but not always. Ultimately specificity is lifting more on the platform. And so you know, if you do competition squats and you just find they really bang you up and you need to do something else, then man, you just need to do something else. So that was one of the reasons for me why, like, cause I could, I've got a big front squat, like I, can, I could front squat 500 for like a double or a triple. Right. And, and so that is something I use very effectively to drive my, my comp squat, but it was also helping me keep fatigue down. So this is kind of interesting balance where I was alternating between front squats one week and, and, uh, Buffalo bar squats the next week. Right. Cause to kind of save my shoulders, cause I'm a bigger guy, obviously. And, and so I think those things are, are the big ones. Managing recovery is really important. And then prop, like, I know other people have their opinions on this. And, and so I, there's plenty of lifters that, that do weight cuts and are very successful at it. Like Ben Pollock is someone who's fantastic at it. Um, and a lot of people do it. I'm sort of of the opinion of being a lot more conservative. I'm actually not a big fan of weight cuts. I think that you should walk around at your competition weight or very close to it. Probably shouldn't cut more than, you know, like maybe two or three kilos at most. I know it's very conservative. That's just sort of my perspective. And I don't think that that's like right or wrong. I just, that's how I sort of see it. Because to me, it's just sort of introducing another variable of uncertainty, you know, into the mix. And it's like, you've done all this prep. Why not just go out there and, and crush it? And like I said, there's great arguments we made for the counter. That's just my perspective. So it's neither right nor wrong. It's just my experience. Are there any other aspects of programming for powerlifting that we maybe haven't talked about yet that you're particularly passionate about or particularly opinionated about? Yeah. Level of effort mm. is, is something really important. So whenever I take on a new athlete, very, very frequently, I get 
them messaging me being like, Hey, uh, this is way less volume than I'm used to. And I'm like, okay, let's just, let's just start here. And we'll see. And it takes a couple of weeks, you know, cause they're like, and even, this even happens in fairly advanced athletes as well. Like it just does, you know, if you don't have someone really on you, the level of effort just kind of goes down. So he sends me a video. I'm thinking of a particular individual, a video. And he's like, Oh yeah, this is my, you know, top triple at, at an eight, an RP eight. And I look at it and I'm like, Mm-mm, you need to throw on more weight. Next week, sends me back the video. He's throwing on more weight, Mm-mm, more weight next week. Right. He's gone up like 40, 50 pounds at this point. Right. And this is a very strong guy. He's a very experienced athlete, you know, and, and he was, he was kind of sandbagging it and he didn't realize. And so then it took about three to four weeks before he was actually pushing at that level of, of intensity. Right. Because I honestly think a lot of people do a little too much volume, but they don't necessarily get the most out of each set and each rep. Like if you're pushing, you know, let's say a set of five to an RP eight, that is very hard. That's very, very hard. If you're at a true RP eight, not this like, oh, this is an eight, like you see on Instagram, like a real RP eight is very hard. So, you know, if you're really pushing that hard, you don't need as many sets because the intensity of effort is so high. And then that scales, you know, to some degree as well with your, you know, with your auxiliary work. So let's say you're doing squats here and then maybe you're doing a leg press. Pushing super hard on the leg press is brutal. And then same thing with your accessories. You know, don't sandbag your accessories. That's very common that a lot of lifters do it at all levels. And so it's like, if you're actually pushing to that intensity, man, you can really see some incredible progress just because you were not actually putting out the effort that you thought, you know, so getting people to, to actually work at the level that's prescribed in their program is, is a really, really big thing. Maybe doing a little bit less, but making sure that you're getting a lot of intensity of effort out of your actual training program. And a lot of the times you can save yourself time and then just kind of additional wear and tear. So that, that's one thing that I, I sort of see as well. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, Daniel, I really appreciate your time. We're kind of coming up toward the end here, but before we leave, uh, I do want to ask, where's the best place for people to follow along with you, the content you're producing, et cetera? I have an Instagram account. It's uh, Daniel underscore DeBrock. I have a YouTube account, Daniel underscore DeBrock. And then I have a, um, gosh, what is that called? I just started a TikTok. I totally sold out. <laughs> it's also it's also Daniel underscore DeBrock. Those are the three main social platforms that I use pretty consistently. And uh, and yeah. And you also, I've, I've noticed that on those, on, on Instagram, you know, when you write something and someone asks about it, or you're interacting with someone, you will, you will promote an article like, Hey, I've written this about, not everyone does that. Not everyone who writes online will, will call attention to the fact that they are writing for various publications online. So I like that you do that by follow along, along with you. People are kind of directed toward where you're writing at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, well, I try to do it because it ends up being like a pretty useful resource because they're like, I get people ask me the exact same questions every time. And so now I like, I just have an article and I'm like, hey, here you go. <laughs> I already did the work there. I already did the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is a better explanation than I'm going to be able to give you right now. <laughs> this is an edited explanation of what I would yeah, give you. Exactly. Daniel, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's a pleasure to connect and uh, I hope we get to do it again soon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, man. It's, it's been a pleasure. 